Good morning. This is uh, this is take two on this intro. I actually recorded one right after I got done talking to Gino yesterday, but spent the majority of the time ranting about how the Bills needed to cut Matt Areza. Is it Areza? Areza? I don't know. Spent the majority of the time talking about that, and uh, well, they did last night. So, <laughs> so, so that's done. Um, the other th- here's the thing. This is why short intro for a couple of reasons. First of all, Gino Finelli, phenomenal guest, great episode. You don't need to hear me yammer. We want to get right to that. But second of all, because I had two main topics I wanted to talk about, and that was uh, the, the that thing, Matareza. That's that's done. They did the right thing there. I'll be honest with you. Uh, I, as a Browns fan, have been so torn as to what to do about rooting for the team this year. It's just so despicable about Deshaun Watson, and then you see the Bills do this. And granted, I get it. I get that there's a difference, but not really. Not really. Not really. And the Bills just instantly did the right thing. Meanwhile, the Browns are like, now we're playing them. You know, fighting to get him as short of a suspension as possible. The Browns are just bad juju, man. Bad karma. Whew. But here's the thing. I don't know. I just feel can you just switch favorite teams? Can you do that? And I don't want to I don't want to switch favorite teams because the Bills are good. It doesn't look good to switch favorite teams to a great team. It looks like a front myself look like a front runner. And third of all, I'm not convinced the Browns are bad luck. I think I might be the bad luck. In other words, if I declare myself a Bills fan starting this year, suddenly the Bills are going to have some sort of crappy season. Browns will go on to win the Super Bowl. That's me. That's just me. That's how I work. That's my fear. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. The other topic I wanted to talk about, and yes, I am in the car. I just pulled up to Starbucks to grab my morning cold brew here at 6 a.m. on a Sunday. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the Nicosias giving the best, <laughs> the best, the best press conference in the history of press conferences this week. Oh, my God. Um, thank you. We're all gathered here today so that I can tell you that I'm not racist. Now, listen, in full disclosure, I say vile racist things, but I only do it when nobody knows I'm doing (laughs) on Twitter. Oh, by the way, I do it publicly, but so I spread it. But I just as long as they don't know what's coming from me, they didn't know what's coming from me. Well, they do now, but they didn't before. So I don't know how you can say I'm racist. I just say racist things on Twitter under a fake Twitter account. Doesn't make me racist. <laughs> it's the best. I have bad news though. For everybody who likes Guglielmo sauce, I have terrible news, and that is if the Nicosias do go to civil court over this, I will be taking a leave of absence from my plant and making Guglielmo sauce so that I can be in attendance for every moment of that court case uh, because I am utterly fascinated. Anyway, so that's it. Those are the two things I wanted to talk about. And the the, the, the uh, Gino Finelli interview, the Nicosias comes up during this interview. So 
that's I guess I'll leave it to that, right? So I guess we get right to the interview. Or oh, no, one thing, one thing, one thing. Sorry, I did finally watch The Bear on Hulu. Great show, but somewhat realistic. I mean, obviously, a lot of drama going on there. <laughs> A lot of drama, but what it's like to work in a kitchen, somewhat realistic. Uh, in some ways, even even uh, to, to working in a plant, you know, food business in general. I mean, you know, I could relate to that show so much. If you don't know, uh, Guy's one of the best chefs in the world. Brother runs a sandwich shop in Chicago, and the brother dies and leaves him the sandwich shop. So one of the best uh, 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 chefs in the world now has to go run this sandwich shop in Chicago. And it's just basically a mess. The guy was running it, kind of flying by the seat of his pants, running the, uh, the, 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 the sandwich shop and didn't really have any systems in place, you know, had some employees and, and it was just kind of all over the place, a complete shit show. So he takes it over and now he's got to kind of write the ship, you know, and I get that. I totally can relate to that. Our business over the last couple of years, and this is my business I'm talking about, has grown. Uh, we're up to 10 employees now you know the amount of product we put out on a daily basis is uh five six seven hundred gallons a day i mean it's it's far beyond where we were a couple of years ago and with that has come the implementation of systems because at the very beginning for the first handful of months really i would say we've had systems in place now for about 14 maybe 15 months and uh before that went almost a full year basically flying by the seat of our pants to be honest with you and then it just got too big and it was like well no we need to get some systems in place but it's hard to implement systems especially when everyone is in the is in the sort of the habit of not having to follow a system and uh that's what this show is about it's about a guy being like look uh this this restaurant we, we can't do this unless we all get on the same page here and follow a system and i know that that might to you that might sound like oh why is this a good show no it's full of great drama and really an interesting look into what it's like to work in the food business so the bear on hulu it's called so many people had recommended that to me and said i would love it and they were right and i recommend it to you too especially if you've ever been fascinated with or have especially if you've worked in the food business okay that's it i'm gonna shut up let's get to the interview my boy from city news gino finelli So now we are recording officially. All right. But just to carry on the conversation we were just having, I think they say that once you break your concentration, it takes like 15 minutes to get back into full in the zone concentration. I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were talking about how um, 
it's a Saturday right now. Gino's on his way out to a concert because you finally are getting some much-deserved time off. Yeah. Uh, I'm heading back out to work because I can't actually get work done Monday through Friday between like 8.30 and 5 o'clock. It just doesn't happen. Yeah, I've had the problem of working in a newsroom <laughs> where you just have constant conflicting conversations happening back and forth. Oh, yeah. You're just getting sucked in all directions at I all points only, in time. Only a man. Which is fun, but <laughs> sometimes make it hard to get work done. Yes, yes. Well, where are you actually like born and raised? Um, so I grew up in East Arundacoy, um, uh, right right on the city line, like about a block away from James Brown's place, if uh, you know where that of is. Of course yeah, I do, yeah. Rochester legendary uh, yeah. diner. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up there. I went to Eastridge and went to RIT. And uh, yeah. well, I, The question I always like to ask people, if I found you when you were 18 years old, what would you have told me you were going to be when you grew up? <laughs> 18 years old, I don't think I had plans of growing. No? Did you? <laughs> no. Did, did, was journalism on your radar at that point? At that point in time, I, I knew I wanted to write, um, but like I was definitely just a super punk, rebellious teenager that really? just didn't really care about anything. So yeah. I I went to college straight out of high school because I you know that's what things that's a thing people do yeah. and uh, I think at that point in my life like I enrolled in journalism because it was the closest thing to like a writing major where I'm like maybe I can make a living at this and I guess like I really loved like the you know Hunter Thompson Lester Bangs kind of journalism but like it it was pretty quick after going there that like I really fell in love with being able to tell stories and. You know talk to people and learn about the world and stuff so can we talk about your rebellious stage for a moment because <laughs> yeah. i do see you know you're dressed you're dressed for for uh, a concert tonight you've got a button-up shirt and and you got the chest tattoo going on yeah i saw that why well, okay gino <laughs> not that tattoos make you rebellious no they don't but uh <laughs> but know, i didn't expect it i love it i yeah i got i got lots of tattoos and i think um most people that meet me in like uh cause I'm, I'm mainly a government reporter and that atmosphere uh Sometimes people get like glimpses of them. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Wow, I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> didn't know. know those were there. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what is the thing? Then you said it. So you know, you go to RIT and you kind of you find journalism, right? And you 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 fall in love. What's the thing specifically that just is the passion? The storytelling or the um, you know, it, it, it's it's a lot of things. I mean, it's. I had a great professor at RIT who, you know, longtime Rochesterians might recognize, uh, Selma Jacobson, was a longtime DNC reporter and uh, taught at RIT for a while. And she was like one of my first professors that I had um, when I went into the journalism program there. And she is, I mean this in the kindest way possible, a manic force of energy. <laughs> she is an awesome person and she really like uh, kind of opened my eyes to like how much there, how much uh, virtue there is in being able to tell stories that might not ever be told. And I think that really drew me to it, is being able to be that voice for the voiceless, if I can use an old journalistic cliche. And um, that really resonated with me. And then, you know, the, also just the writing part of it. I mean, at my core, I'm a print journalist. I really like doing long-form reporting. And it, it gives you a lot of freedom and opportunity to really dive into issues and learn about the world around you how does that suss out like in the end 
how long a story is going to be. I mean, do you keep a word count? Like, I have no idea how that works. Is there a word count from the beginning, or is it you turn it in and an editor says, perfect, make it longer, make it shorter? I mean, how does that work? Uh, kind of exactly like that. I mean, when I pitch a story, uh, I'll be like, I'll explain the story, what it is, and I'll be like, yeah, for example, it's going to land about 1500 And either my editor will say, that's fine, or... Uh, tone it down <laughs> never get longer never, never get, get longer. That, very rarely is it make it longer <laughs> because i mean brevity is uh, important to be able to tell you can say a lot in 500 words um and you can also say absolutely nothing in 500 words yeah. and that, that's where you know actually having the skill of being able to write something well is becomes important but it, it's a little bit different for what we do because almost all of our reporting is more long form um it, i think probably averages over a thousand words for most of our stuff so i do have that wiggle room of being able to really go further but yeah my editors i'm at the mercy of them most of the time it reminds me of when you said you can say very you can say a lot or very little in 500 words it reminds me of college of trying to get one thought out in 500 trying to stretch it out to 500 words writing writing a a a, a five-page report or something whatever was the assignment but only really having about one page worth of stuff to say oh yeah for sure <laughs> and trying to figure out how do i make this five pages and, and there's also that thing where <laughs> you'll be writing about something and mention something else in it and now you want to go down that rabbit yeah. hole of explaining that thing and yeah. You can do that forever. I mean, you can you can turn a two thousand word story into a a full book if you keep go down going down every single rabbit hole that comes yeah. up in it. Yeah. Okay. So RIT, you 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 fall in love with it. You've got this great professor, and now it's time to go do it. What's the first stop out of RIT? So actually, I mean, when I was in college, I worked at the college magazine at RIT Reporter. Nice. Um, I start. I think I started there when I was nineteen, which means I've been doing this for ten whole years now. Um, I'm young. You are <laughs> Which young. Is what I was just tell me. I was just gonna say that because in my head I just now no I'm not good at math, so I did 19 plus 10 carry the one over the three. 29 years old. <laughs> I'll be I'll be 30 in January. Well, you're yeah. great. You're you are young. Yeah, you're phenomenal. Good job. And I've been doing this. It, it's interesting because like at my age, most people are like. It's funny because it's either people that have already moved on from journalism as a career at my age or are just getting started. And, like, I have, yeah, about a decade of experience now doing it. And it was really my main source of income from the time I was about 20 years old and older um, Mm -hmm. and up. But, yeah, at that point, I started doing the stuff at Reporter, and uh, that gave me a chance to, you know, really hone in on what kind of stories I wanted to do and what I liked doing. Uh, graduated in 2015 and started working for the Associated Press. Um, I was a stringer for them for a little bit, not not super long. What does and, that mean, stringer? Uh, a freelancer. Okay. Um, and I, I did like um, a lot of mostly like breaking crime stuff that would get national attention. Like I covered that uh, story about the guy who was providing money to ISIS. Um, that oh was running, yeah. I think he was at. Um, I don't want to name the restaurant because I, I don't want to misname what it was, but it was a restaurant in the city that he uh-huh. worked at, and uh-huh. he was apparently supplying funds to uh, ISIS. So I, I covered that in court, and after that, I uh, moved to Maryland. Well, can I ask you, Gina, real quick, how free, how does freelance life work? Is it like you recognize a story on your own, nobody tells you, nobody assigns you, you just go do it, and then you basically say, hey, I've, I've written this story, do you want to buy it from me? Is so that how that works? for them... 
it depends on who you're freelancing for because for them it was it was something they wanted and I was in the area oh. so I could go and do it. Um, so it's like a contract. It was almost. a contract yeah. thing, yeah. yeah. It, and you know you get like two three hundred hours of story. Freelancing is a, a living hell, and I don't know how <laughs> anyone anyone who can make a living out of it has my utmost respect because it takes a lot of hustle to be able to do it. Because I, I, I mean there were times in my life where like I. <laughs> quit my job and like okay i'm just gonna be a freelancer and i made it three months i'm like oh god no i have to go work <laughs> in another newspaper um what is it is it just the the lack of security it's just you're always like there's no security no security right there's no, there's no benefits there's it's no, not even technically a job right it's it's just it like a couple it's a gig economy right it's, it's, like it's completely gig economy yeah, yeah and yeah. It, whenever you can write and you know get 200 dollars here and there it's going to help you pay the bills at the end of the month but you never know if it's still going to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, you go up to the national level and people who are trying to freelance on that level, really well-known, respected writers, like, it's the same problem. Really? It, really? It's it's a tough life. Um, so, um, after, like, after I graduated, I moved to Maryland. I worked for uh, Gannett down there for... Um, the Salisbury Daily Times, which had me driving from Midway up to Delaware down to Virginia, my whole area that I covered with about four hours, and I started doing government investigative work there. That was uh, six, seven years ago now. How much fun is that? You're like a detective. Well, yeah. It seems cool. <laughs> it's, uh, it's really fun. Uh, it's There's just a really cool way of being able to hold people accountable by... Uh, really digging into things and one of the things that i always just find you know personally and professionally just really distasteful are liars i can't stand when someone is just untruthful about anything and it really makes it it's a motivation for me of like when someone says something like now i got to check that and you can spend days digging and then you'll eventually find something that proves it wrong and it's funny now too because you know the journalism market is so gutted there's so few people that do that work now that like government officials are like how the hell did you find that like, <laughs> like i can do my have you job. ever had somebody actually say to you how did you find that yeah of course like, uh, uh, quite a think... few times yeah. or get the, the angry phone call of uh yeah where did you get this from like, yeah, yeah none of your business man <laughs> right <laughs> that's my problem to figure out that's amazing how how would you how do you do that i mean is that just building a, a zillion connections in the community that oh, you yeah. serve that's yeah what that, that i mean that's the biggest thing you yeah. have to have people trust you and willing to talk to you and uh for some reason i'm good at that like uh, uh you are very likable i yeah, I, I, yeah that's a really good selling point for yeah. the job too yeah. like uh pe people that are willing to talk to you um that that's the lifeblood of you know being a good journalist mm -hmm. and you know it's it, it's a lot of connection building it's a lot of conversations uh, it's a lot of getting coffee or beer with people and talking and some guy asks you to come do a podcast in his front yard like, and you say exactly, yes exactly just like that <laughs> um and like sometimes it's you're just building relationships with no intent of doing any story but something in you tells you like this person might be useful in the future yeah. they might know something so you know can i tell you real quick that what i do in general what i do is essentially sales and it's the exact same thing of what you're explaining it's not about cold calling you know it's not about like necessarily and sometimes you do this sometimes in sales you are cold calling sure and you sometimes you probably are knocking on a front door 
trying to find. But other times, it's just literally building real relationships within the community you serve so that when that person needs the thing that you happen to have, they think of you. Of course. That's That's it. That's 100% what it is. And it's, uh, I mean, it's work. It's, you, I've always... um, I've never really liked doing the kind of reporting where it's like jumping from press conference to press conference kind of thing. And I do that kind of stuff, too. Like, there's no question I'm at press conferences and I'm not looking down at anyone whose main focus is doing that kind of work. But I think 80% of my time is more spent talking to people, just talking and trying to find out... um, if they might know something that's interesting or if they might in the future know something that's interesting to me and it's just building relationships and that that's critical you then have to go out and of course check right you have to get like verification that this is real i can't just tell you some whopper right now and you're like great i'm printing it tomorrow yeah right how how uh, easy or hard is that it depends on what it is uh-huh. but um I think a great example was uh, the police accountability board stuff that happened over in like mm-hmm. May and June, which um, our reporting on it, um, I, I'm really comfortable saying it went in far more depth than anyone else. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that was I had been covering the PAB really closely for a long time, and I found it really interesting. I had made some good connections over there. Um and it turned into when things started, uh, you know, really hitting the fan over there and it started getting really worrisome. I started having people that were reaching out to me like, I don't want to be named at all, but I have this, I have that. And they started like sliding me documents that ended up being some of like the stories like that showed what was actually happening mm-hmm. to a certain degree. Um, it, that, that's, that, that was a, just off the top of my head a really good moment where like having all those connections at once it really helped it, it really made things a lot easier to do and ultimately the reporting was better for it it got us stuff that no one else was able to get and that's that that's really the, the end game that's what you're trying to do How'd you end up back in Rochester then? Was it straight from Maryland, you said, right? Yeah, yeah. so I was there for a little over a year, uh-huh. um, and my my girlfriend at the time was living in Rochester. That was a big reason I moved back, but also I just didn't like living there. Um, it, it was just not my kind of environment. I wanted, and there was also like that inkling in me of like, I was doing, I, I think, important work down there. It was, it's very similar to the work I'm doing here, but I thought a lot about like, I'm never going to be a millionaire doing this job. <laughs> I'm never going to, uh, you know, strike it rich. Um, and I really don't care about recognition, like, you know, fame or anything like that. Yeah. So I like look at it. I've always looked at journalism as a public service, and I'd rather be doing that in a place that I really care about yeah. than uh, just a, a place where they're offering me a job. So uh, they tried to keep me down there, but... Um, I said no. Yeah. <laughs> so I came back here. The, the problem, I think, with media, journalism, media, I guess, is with the big offer they make you is they'll be like, we know we're only paying you $36,000 right now. I was making 32. 32. But listen, Gino, <laughs> you know, if you stay, we are prepared to offer you. $33,000. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, I, that was my experience a little. Yeah. In, I, in radio. I, I was living, <laughs> I could barely afford to live. Like mm. it, it was really, I was on, 
the, I was on the edge of surviving and, and it's like, what's the point? Like, I, I'm like, I'm not happy here. I can do the same kind of work someplace where I actually know people and care about the community. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I just don't have those feelings down here. I would imagine that, that down there, you know, you're unfamiliar with the, so it probably would take so much time to learn that area like the back of your hand. Whereas here, you grew up here. You know this area. Yeah. I was, it had to help. I, it definitely helps here. Um, there's definitely things I already knew that made it easier to make connections with people. But down there, I'm like, it was just all of my waking time was spent trying to meet people and talk to people mm-hmm. and get good sources. And, you know, it paid off. Uh, but it's not the same as here have you ever had anybody tell you something that was would have been huge but you just couldn't get the proof i would say about two or three times a month that's gonna be so frustrating um for example the this uh recent story about uh nicosia's and their never heard of that stuff i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) their their juneteenth period i don't worry we're hitting to that i can't wait to talk about that a little i I knew about that for a few weeks before it all came out and um it was i i tried i i definitely tried to confirm it i don't think i'm the only reporter who knew about the story in general or the a twitter account or both of the whole thing the party and later the twitter account were both things that i was aware of well before we were able to report them we i mean can we let's we might as well just go into it right now that was so fascinating to me i mean i essentially learned from you reporting without reporting that she was behind that twitter account right yeah and i had remembered you know once in a while i love twitter i'm on twitter all the time and i remembered that account popping up from time to time and always looking at it and being like what the f is this <laughs> like jesus these, it was really bad yeah it was really bad this is crazy and i always picture i mean i always pictured you know I don't know some guy living in his parents' basement. Me too. With cheese Cheeto dust on his fingers, you know, playing EverQuest or something. <laughs> like describing myself right now, by the way. But uh, no, but I always, you know, I never pictured some, you know, uh, rich white lady on East Avenue behind that ever. What a mind blowing thing! It's pretty shocking. Yeah. Um, you know, it's. I, I I really really do take the route of like well. We all know that that vein exists mm-hmm. in high society um, of you know wealthy okay. people that harbor really hateful views on the world, but the specific variety of racism that was being promoted there was something that, yeah, it was surprising. Right. Like that that it's just that's something that's talked about in hushed tones mm-hmm. in fancy ballrooms when they're having their you know mm-hmm. galas and stuff like that, yeah. but. Yeah, you you don't expect to see stuff like that. No, not at all. I mean, that was that was unbelievable. You you mentioned on Twitter that you actually called her. I did. She denied it right to you, right? Yes, nope, she did. not me. And you already said during this podcast, nothing pisses you off more than somebody who just lies. And that really upset. I wouldn't say upset is the right word, but it did put the inkling of me of just. You're like, come on! All right, now I'm going to get you. It made a lot of things that. <laughs> like we're already questionable feel like i can't believe anything you say so yeah. um she carried on by the way right up until the moment she got busted oh yes 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 this, this it's funny because i called her and uh she denied it and everything this was about i'd say like a week and a half before all all this stuff came out and like 20 minutes later the account tweeted again and it was reply limited mm. <laughs> and then like three hours later it was deleted mm-hmm. um and 
uh, also credit to like a lot of like Twitter sleuths had found a lot of the stuff that yeah. um, I some of it I hadn't seen and a lot of it I had already seen by the time it started like really circulating that this account probably uh, there was that one somebody had posted it was a picture uh, that 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 account had posted and then a different vantage point from the street right it was yep. like a Google map and that was the really I feel like the one where it was like this is this is just undeniable evidence yeah and i went over to the house and shot like angles around from the sidewalk of like what you can see and it's like it's very obvious yes yeah it it was very very obvious yeah um but yeah i mean the cycle there went like i me and my editor like we did a lot of hand wringing over this and did a lot of talking about it before um we decided we didn't have enough to um publish a story and that was about a day before that was a day before the press conference and then she just admitted it so we went with it she admitted i believe during the press conference that was held to uh prove that she wasn't uh racist relatively inexplicably (laughs) by the way i'm not really sure why and that was my biggest question about that whole thing is one why did they even hold this press conference and two uh why would you admit that uh i beyond me Uh, it was not a smart move but whatever (laughs) oh boy that whole story has been unbelievable it's 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 really i mean it is a crazy story the way it's blown up like internationally at this point like it's been picked Mm -hmm. uh, our reporting has been picked up by the new york post by the daily mail um over in england the daily beast uh, i I mean all over the place yeah I feel like so much more of my work is more important than that. And uh, there's something about that story though that's fascinating. You it, know, it, it resonates with a lot of people. And uh, my my editor, who he, he actually wrote the story, I just contributed a lot of reporting to it. Um, like both of us, we we talked about this the other day, and like, yeah, I mean, this doesn't feel like the most important work we've ever done, but we'll, we'll, we'll take it. It's I guess. Flex or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, during that. Uh, interesting press conference. The lawyer talked about how now the Nicosias may sue. I don't know if they have or they might sue. I don't know what it is. They're going to sue somebody or something. I don't know. But uh, if and when they do, that the other people who are at the party will m- eventually probably be named because they're going to have to, I don't know, make statements, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he mentioned that. I'm not sure. Well, I don't know anything about law. I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how things work. They, from my understanding of what they, what Corey Hogan, their lawyer, said, uh, was effectively anyone who is misleading the public will be subject to legal mad, um, legal proceedings, which mm-hmm. sounds like you're going to sue anyone for defamation who comments on uh, mm-hmm. every, anything that happened there. Well, I'm getting sued, I guess, because I think I've said a couple. Tell times. me about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but if they have to go, if the, if the people, I can't imagine anybody who was at that party is going to want to say anything. So I would never ever put you on the spot like this so i will not ask you this question but i will ask you the overlying umbrella of this question have people slipped to you the information of who was at that party and of course i will not ask you to go any further than um that. i you don't have nothing to nothing that i've confirmed um i i've heard i've heard rumors speculation and I, I also have pretty strong theories of who i think was there but i'll keep them to myself of course of course i wouldn't ask you to I, that was just, I mean, of all the stories you've covered, there, there was a bunch of stuff I wanted to get into, but that obviously being the most recent. Yeah, that is, uh, that was a, that was an interesting one. It's unreal. And what a small town we live in, too. I had a dinner at Nosh on Thursday night with some uh, people, some clients I had in town, and one of them 
had just figured out they were all from out of town and one of them had just figured out this was the city where that happened they probably read your reporting they were from boston you know mm-hmm. and they were like oh my god that was rochester like that thing was rochester as that conversation is happening fire truck drives by and remember we're at nosh so we're in generally the same vicinity fire truck number four of course <laughs> right behind i'm going what a small freaking town this is that's funny too i i went out to the i went out to the state fair yesterday and uh i was just talking to i was doing a, a liquor tasting at one of the stands and i was talking to the guy that was volunteering there turns out i interviewed him like four months ago oh it was a little bit longer than that but for a completely unrelated thing, he he worked at Trillium Health, and it's just the the whole this upstate New York is a giant small town. Oh, yeah. I always thought it was just Rochester, but it's everywhere. No, it's crazy. <laughs> everyone knows everyone somehow. Yep. Yep. What I love about Rochester so much is I could go anywhere, any restaurant I want to go to tonight, I can go to, not know most of the people in the restaurant, but absolutely know somebody in that restaurant. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I go to a lot of breweries uh, and. I can't tell you the last time I walked into one didn't see at least two people I know. Of course, uh, which is great. Like it's because uh, I, I I like I like going places by myself. I just enjoy the atmosphere, sitting down and having a beer by myself at a bar. Um, Are you an introvert? I would say so. Yeah. yeah. Um, there was for a long time where you know you had to be very public facing in this job where I did feel like I was putting on an act, like mm. I was I was. I was playing a character. You mean um, just being social? In being general? social, yeah. yeah. But you know, it, it was I guess a fake it till you make it situation. Now, like it, it's a lot more natural for me. But I'm definitely the kind of person that, like, if I'm spending a whole day doing interviews, I go home and I don't leave the house. Like, yeah. I don't want to deal with people. I just want to. Uh, be by myself i'm the exact same way i've always understood it to be introverts we we recharge our energy or we fill our tanks by being alone Mm -hmm. extroverts fill their tanks by being around other people we empty our tanks as introverts being around other people yeah i mean after like doing like two or three interviews in a day which is a pretty normal day Mm -hmm. it is it really can be emotionally and physically Mm -hmm. draining Um, because of the nature of your job and being what we've already talked about. You want to know everybody. You want to have every connection you could possibly have. Do you feel an obligation to say yes to everything? I think when I was younger, I did. Um, it was it was definitely hard to turn things down. I've gotten more comfortable with it. And I've also learned that the kind of people that are going to be like upset that you turn them down, they're usually not that useful to begin with. Right, right. Um, they're, they're usually not that beneficial to your life or work they tend to be frankly a pain in the ass a lot of the time (laughs) so you know i I do that's something i've been working on a lot of like learning how to separate you know what i'm capable of and what i would like to do okay okay it's just i was more asking you really for advice because i i'm stuck in that sometimes where i think boy why can't i just say no sometimes you never can I, this sounds awful but you can't be afraid to hurt people's feelings yeah like, i am though i'll be honest i am i if and you know it, it happens a lot like I'll, I'll i get a lot of that like after i publish a story that doesn't look good for someone i'll get that phone call of uh why would you do this to me and it's like mm-hmm. you, you did this to yourself like mm-hmm. uh 
or like having to explain to someone like I'm not your friend like you can't keep calling me and venting to me and expecting me not eventually to do something with it <laughs> somebody calls you and says I murdered seven people how dare you tell anyone N- never that serious <laughs> well, but know. like sometimes people like admitting things that like they know I'm looking into <laughs> and then like getting upset when I like confirm it with someone else like I, like I, like I respect off the record but there's also like the when you had the expectation you're just going to call me and start venting and that we're off the record yeah that's not the way the world works. by the way is off the record a real thing off the record's a real thing not in not in a legal sense for the most part like it wouldn't for the most part it wouldn't hold up in court off the record is something that people have wildly different views on I can say as a journalist of what it actually is. Yeah. If you're talking to me, it's on the record. If you ask me, can we go off the record, and I say yes, ethically, I am going to consider that conversation as off the record. But you can't just call me and say, hey, this is off the record. I I, I just shot the president mm-hmm. and expect me not to say anything about it because I didn't agree to that. And I wouldn't agree to that if I knew what you were going to say. That's fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So it, it, there's I, I do... There are a lot of people that is I... Is there I, law behind that at all? If I if I say to you off the record, and then I give you an absolute whopper, and you run with it, so is there, do you have any obligation to actually be off the record, or, or are you just talking about general journalism ethics? Generally speaking, there's no real obligation for yeah. me to do that. Um, in New York State, we're, we're a one-party consent state when it comes to recordings. So... Um, if we formally agree that we're off the record, I am ethically bound to to uh, not report it and uh, you know keep it to myself. However, it's going to be a shaky thing in court if you try to sue me over. And again, I wouldn't do it. Like I, I try to be <laughs> fair and honest and respectable in my job, so I wouldn't do it. But people think off the record is like you say it and now you can admit to crimes. Yeah. And like, that's not the way it works. Have you ever had anyone tell you, this is used to happen to me all the time in radio, say, now you can't report on this. And then they tell you something so unbelievably unimportant that you're like, oh, oh I guess I can't run with that. Constantly. Like, uh, <laughs> um, just between you and me, like, I, I, I had chicken for dinner last night. Like, <laughs> I don't care. I almost <laughs> bought a red backpack instead of a blue backpack. Now, don't write that in the story. Wow. <laughs> That's crazy. That was going to be the lead. <laughs> Damn it. We needed a front page tomorrow. <laughs> That's funny. That used to happen to me all the time in radio. You can't use this on the radio. Constantly. And you have to entertainment. Like, <laughs> like you have to be yeah. like, oh, yeah, no, we'll, we'll keep that between us. But like, it's like, why the hell would you think I'd even care about that? What about the exact opposite thing? What about somebody says to you, Gino, can we go off the record? And you say yes we can go off the record and then they tell you something and you're like whoa and that and- one is um that one's a trickier situation because that means i can't use anything i was just told besides to ask other people about it well can you just can you literally in real time just with that person go oh come on come on dude oh i do all the time yeah, yeah. come on and sometimes it works sometimes it's like i i think the most common thing that happens is like Listen, I need you to go on the record about this. And they'll be like, can I think about it? And I'm like, yeah, and I'll give like I'll give you 2 hours. Yeah. And like call me or text me if it's yes or no. Yeah. Almost always it's no. Uh-huh. <laughs> like they'll they'll hang up and they'll think about it and be like, no, no, I definitely shouldn't have even said that to begin. Well, to with. what extent are you allowed to be anonymous as a tipster? Anonymous is uh 
so there, there's different varieties of uh, anonymous sources. Ones that are directly quoted in a story, that's the highest bar for being anonymous in that we have to confirm everything that you're saying is true. We have to know who you are um, and we have to verify everything. And, the, and we only grant it in a situation where the person could reasonably expect um, retaliation if they were um, okay. you know, quoted as saying something. That makes it um, that makes it tricky sometimes. Like, uh, the, the, that that is definitely a situation we almost never try to use anonymous sources. We had before, and I, I have before, but it, there's a lot of scrutiny behind it. But the other variety of anonymous source is someone who tells you something, doesn't want to be quoted, you didn't hear it from me, kind of thing. That is just a situation where I can't say where the information came from, but I can use the information I got to confirm it somewhere else, and we use those all the time, mm -hmm. like, constantly. I have tons of people that, like, leak me stuff or send me stuff or tell me something happened, and I'm able to look into it based on what they said, but the agreement there is it didn't come from them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, usually what I tell, like, especially government sources that, like, have access to documents I'm not supposed to have is it just showed up on my desk mm -hmm. and that's it. Mm -hmm. um, little bird told me stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's, that's, fa it's fascinating thinking about the navigation of the, I don't know, the, the legal, I don't, I don't even know what I'm trying to say on the record, off the record, documents that you maybe shouldn't have that somehow you do get. Mm -hmm. do, are you ever worried if you see a government document show up on, just show up on your desk and you're like, I'm not really supposed to be seeing this, but it's on my desk. So I, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Good for you. I, I don't care at all. I, I'm, I, I, if I have any, um, cause I know there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of theorizing about journalists, like political beliefs and their ideological leanings. Mm -hmm. And I, I definitely get a lot of that stuff. And, uh, you know, the only thing that I really believe in ideologically is radical transparency. I believe the government works for us and we should be able to have access to everything that they're working on. And mm -hmm. the idea of secret government documents outside of like the CIA and like, you know, high sensitivity situations is um is absurd to me right and even a lot of that stuff i find kind of absurd so well i i would say the only time i, I so i mostly agree with that the only time i don't agree is uh the the location the physical location of somebody who a lot of people want to cause harm to that's the only time that i think that is really or like a spot you know what i'm saying like an american spy they went over they got great intelligence or something or they're they're currently in moscow gathering great like there's got it somewhere somebody knows where that person is stationed of course we and shouldn't know that we, we should. shouldn't know that yeah. and uh there's things like you know like nuclear codes things mm -hmm. like that mm -hmm. yeah i understand why those documents are secret but you know a monetary transaction in a city government that is something the public has the right to know about. There's yeah. nothing sensitive there, and the only time it's ever really held from the public is when there's a concern that it could cause embarrassment or harm to the people that engineered that document to begin with. Mm. And frankly, I don't care. Don't don't hide things from the public. Yeah. Has your jaw ever dropped? Yeah. 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 There, there's definitely been some moments where it's just like. What the hell happened here? Uh, my, for me, uh, it was Adam McFadden. That was one where <laughs> that was I a went. Big one, yeah. Oh my God, Adam! I just never thought he was anything but as clean as possible. And that one was one where I was like, oh, 
uh, lovely Warren's husband's arrest. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that was a big yep. one. Um, yeah, that, there's there's quite a few throughout throughout the years that I was just like pretty shocked by, but. Oh, I think the really tough part is like you you can become numb to it after a while too. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I never really had that much faith in systems to begin with, but you know, doing this job long enough, like it's just you kind of expect the worst after a while. Have you ever feared retaliation against yourself? You ever thought Mary Nicosia is going to show up at your front door and punch you in the face? <laughs> feared is not the right word. There's times I've expected it. Uh-huh. Um, I I've definitely gotten threats before. And Ugh, I'm sorry, bro. I mean, it's it's fine. It's just it's so weird to me that you know people get so worked up over just me doing my job, mm-hmm. um, where like you could just talk to me, like and let me know what your concern is, and I'm, I'll listen. But like just jumping from i don't like this story to i want to cause this person you know physical harm yeah. is is uh, some people out there are just unzipped and you, you can't really do anything about it but nope. yeah there's been times where i've definitely worried about you know someone coming and doing something i'm more so worry about like you know i work with other people and someone showing up at the building might be coming after me but they might change their target pretty quickly so i worry about that more than than like my own safety like i'll, I'll be fine i can handle myself mm-hmm. but uh uh I, I i do worry about like the people in my periphery that could be harmed by someone who's just on a unhinged uh path mm-hmm. towards me i understand yeah, I'm sorry that you have to deal with that. That's not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. <laughs> just for doing your job. It, it honestly comes with the territory. I yeah. mean, it's just, you, you expect it after a while. You, uh, it's, we, I've been kind of trying to go through your life story a little, but uh, <laughs> you end up back in Rochester, but I don't think we ever said how you actually ended up at, at City. Was that the first job back in Rochester? or No, I, the first thing I did when I got back to Rochester, I freelanced at the Democrat Chronicle for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Was trying to get a full time job there, but didn't work out. Thank God. I mean, <laughs> right? Gannett is horrible. I love the people at the DNC. They have some of the best journalists in in the state. Well, frankly, on or off the record, most of them will also tell you Gannett is horrible. Oh yeah, they they, yeah. they certainly do. Yeah. When I say <laughs> that the Democrat Chronicle is terrible, it's not. I'm not saying the work they do is terrible. No. I'm saying their corporate ownership yeah. is dreadful. Gary Craig, Justin Murphy, uh, Tracy. The, there's there's some excellent reporters yep. over there. Yep. So, um, and I have the utmost respect for them. Um, but yeah, the, it's just it's a nightmare. Gannett is awful. Uh, but speaking of Gannett, after that, I worked for the Rochester Business Journal for about two years. I got laid off when uh, Gannett and Gatehouse merged. After they told us that no one will be being laid off. And, <laughs> uh, so I I left um, I I got I got laid off and I left and uh, didn't really have any plan. Um, this was right around the time that City got bought by WXXI. Uh, Dave Andriata had come on as the executive editor over there. So I put in a job application. Didn't hear anything for a while. Um, I left Rochester and just started like traveling. I spent like two or three weeks on the road just traveling across the country. Um, 
and I was in West Virginia and I got a call from Dave and he said, yeah, you got the job. And I started the next week. So I had to come back to Rochester <laughs> and, back. and then I've been there since, uh, it's been three years now. Were you two, three weeks driving around the country? Were you by yourself? No, I, I flew out to Denver and uh, met up with a friend who's very traveling hippie kind of person. <laughs> she's, she's awesome. Um, and we just left there and drove in her Toyota Tacoma through, uh, Nice. Um, most of the most of the country. What was your first uh, story at City? Um, the first big thing I covered was uh, the layoffs at the RCFD. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it, this was right before COVID. I don't know if many people remember it because a lot of people were thinking like which layoffs. Yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. so many. That's I mean, actually what was going through my head. Yeah, there's another yeah. round coming. But this was um, they called it the Christmas massacre um, because it was right around the end of December and. Uh, they laid off it was it was I, I can't remember the exact number but it was a lot of teachers yeah. and uh this was um at the time where there was uh, the budgetary crisis was in full swing which it still is and uh so yeah that was like my, my first big story there i can't remember what my actual first story was. It was i think it was something small but that was like when i started just actually doing some of the work that what, I, I what are your to top top couple give me actually give me your biggest in terms of general popularity but then also your personal favorite whether it was popular or not um i think the biggest was actually the story we just did about the nicosias um, but that was bigger than the prude protests and everything i believe so, so yeah. oh wow that's just you're talking about it from a pure numbers standpoint from a pure numbers standpoint because that went well, because we have it went over all over the world yeah and we have like a ticker in our office and like it, it's like astronomical numbers by our standards right now but uh um, the Prude protest, um, there was right around, actually, it was the day the Prude video came out, I did a story that I've been working on for about two months beforehand on uh, police reform that just, it, it, the, the timing was extremely strange. Um, and like, the video mm-hmm. comes out, and this story was about how 50 years we've been trying to reform the police here, and it's failed miserably every time. It's crazy timing. Um, yeah, so that story was wildly popular. That was in September 2020. I did a like a sister piece to that. The uh, like eight months later, that was about the Locust Club, the police union, um, and uh, that that was a super long story, and it got actually a lot of attention because uh, it, it kind of went into the, the history of this union and uh, how it was formed as you know just this social club for cops that turned into this political force here and it was a really fascinating story there's so many of them now that i'm looking back at it there's just so many stories that were really popular a lot of the weed stuff i did last year about like um you know the gifting clause and uh, cannabis sales Mm -hmm. and those stories were wildly popular and uh, people really liked those so those were fun to do too because you know like I went and bought weed at a store and <laughs> then I had to convince the owner to talk to me about it, which was funny because so many people thought that story was like an advertisement that they reached out to me. Uh-huh. Like that was not the no, case. They happened. were really not happy with me. <laughs> was that where you, didn't you have a tweet about that you were expensing some marijuana or something? And you're like, I never thought I'd be submitting an expense Yeah, WXXI for- paid for that cannabis <laughs> for me. They, they, they paid for an eighth of weed for me. That's awesome. Nice. A t-shirt. They actually paid for a t-shirt, but. <laughs> Great. There's a truck going by, I should say, for the uh, podcast listeners. Um, 
do you what about that there's something awkward to me about uh print journalism in that you have uh you get uh, the time between the tip the original tip you said like you mentioned with nicosia's which i guess we can run with that since it's the most recent yeah and still also interesting this podcast comes out tomorrow by the way so it'll still be okay. timely so anyway the uh the, the, you get the tip uh, you know about all this how hard is that couple of weeks where you have this thing but like it hasn't dropped yet. Nobody else has it yet. It, Is that a weird couple of weeks? It's terrible. Uh, <laughs> like, and I um, have been working on this for a long time. Of like, just chill out. Like it'll it'll happen. No one else is going to get this. But sometimes they do. And oh, like, that's, that's the worst suck. part. Like, well, I have a story that I've been working on for like two weeks, and you know, someone will just. Or the, someone will just hold a press conference out of nowhere yeah. and announce it. Or, you know, another reporter might have gotten the same tip because sources aren't faithful and they'll always go to another person if they feel like you're taking too long. So, yeah, it, it is, uh, especially when you know the story is going to be read a lot, mm -hmm. you want to get it out there really badly. Um, but at the same time, you have to make sure you do things right. So, um do you ever feel like, is, is there a tease? Like, for example, right now, as we sit here right now, is there something that's a week, two weeks, three weeks away that you're like, ha, 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 can't talk about it yet. It's not not, it's not vetted yet. But. There's a couple things that yeah. I'm working on that I don't think they're going to be, but, like, this can change by, by Monday. So yeah. it, I don't think these ones are going to be, it's like some of the stuff in my hopper right now are going to be groundbreaking, but they're really interesting stories. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, like, there's always... I, I this job consumes your whole life after a while, mm -hmm. so I'm always looking for stuff. I'm always thinking about stuff, and uh, I get excited. I think the great thing is like when you have a, a good story and you're you want to get out that excitement. That's the only thing you don't really become jaded to. Of like you always feel that little rush of being able to put it out there. Yeah. Do you when your story publishes? Do you you refresh, refresh, refresh? 12, Seventeen views. Come on. I, Where is everybody? <laughs> you know, and reading the comments too. Like, oh, we got to get into comments. Yeah, oh. you know, it, it's very well known. You shouldn't read them, but I, I can't help myself. What is I it really about can't. the human psyche that we focus on the negative one? Why do we do that? You know, I, I don't know. Like, I, I think my mentality is very much like I. I'm very open to criticism, and like if it's good criticism, I, I want to hear it. But like, there's something fascinating to me about some dude just red-faced behind a keyboard just tearing into me because he didn't like what he read. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, like it was an affront to his entire existence or uh, their existence because, as we've learned, this is not a uh, a gender specific activity this is someone something everyone does apparently mm -hmm. um some people are very just angry at the world and i'm a good target for it and reporters in general are a good target for it public figures in general are a good target for it i think it's kind of a flaw in social media in general that people actually go out seeking things that piss them off i think that happens a lot um i had one the other day a dude who was just coming at me it was just a random anonymous account nothing notable about it but what he said really stuck with me and it was about um after anthony mazurkovic uh, had died uh 
uh, or was killed um, in the line of duty, uh, he tweeted at me and like, I bet Gino is the kind of person that said, uh, that's what you get, that's what he signed up for. Well, the hell with you. And like, you just got mad about something you imagined me saying, yeah. man. Like, <laughs> like I never said anything like that. <laughs> you made that up. <laughs> you just made it up. You made up me to be a character that stands for things you don't agree with and are super pissed at it now. Yeah. Like, it, it's just... <laughs> It's crazy to me. Like it, it's it's really wild just how much people are looking to be outraged. You you might not be the right person to ask this to because I don't I don't know if any of us know the answer. But Twitter itself or any social media platform for that matter, the anonymous accounts they have to know, right? That's got to be linked to, to some. I'm just going based on what I've seen in movies right now. But that's got to be linked to some IP address, right? It like, certainly is. Why are they not required to occasionally out people who are just being? overall shitty you know i i have compliment complicated relationships with um am i allowed to swear by the way am i <laughs> yeah this okay? is this is uh pg-13 you can swear a little and brief nudity is fine oh okay. <laughs> i'm just I'm kidding no yes yeah, so. you can swear you can swear <laughs> uh okay cool um so you know it's um i feel like I have a very complicated feeling on just the topic of a, uh, anonymous accounts to begin with mm-hmm. I feel like there are legitimate reasons a person can have an anonymous account because they're fearing fearing retaliation for saying things that are not necessarily incendiary, but because of their identity or something like that, they fear like outing themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I honestly think they're more uncommon than people make them out to be i think most of the time people are anonymous is because they want to be able to say whatever they want to and not have it connected back to them and for a lot of people that turns into i just want to spew vitriol Mm -hmm. and that to me is like the essence of cowardice Mm -hmm. um it, it is i want to be able to say whatever i want to but i want to do it in a way that i'm safe and will never have to deal with the consequences of it that makes you just it, like not, it, you're not worthy of respect. Um, yeah, and that that, that word, it's not. This is not really an answer to the question. It's just, I, I, I feel like Twitter does an absolutely terrible job of doing anything about these accounts that are literally pushing for violence against people uh, such as libs of tiktok is doing right now on twitter is calling for attacks on hospitals children's hospitals because of uh gender reassignment surgeries that they claim are happening oh my god yeah this has been a thing for a while and twitter does absolutely nothing about it because it's a big account so it's and i i think it's shameful and i think we as a society deserve better than that ultimately social media is a horrible horrible thing like it could have been used for really good purposes but what it's turned into i i advise anyone who doesn't need to use it for work or you know just something that is valuable to their life that they couldn't have find anywhere else don't use it it's not good. Why isn't there every single time I open Instagram or Twitter or Facebook or TikTok for that matter, why isn't there a box that pops up that says social media can be hazardous to mental health? Are you sure you'd like to open Facebook right now? I mean, it happens every time I buy something on Amazon. They say, are you sure? Yeah. Right? So why would why shouldn't I just have that? Just maybe that one extra check where I'm going, okay, maybe I'm 
opening Instagram right now out of habit. And uh, I love that it's giving me this reminder right now that maybe I don't really need Instagram. Maybe I should put down my phone and go see what my three-year-old son is doing. Yeah, for, for sure. Maybe mm-hmm. I should go for a walk. Maybe I should mm-hmm. read a book. Because, I mean, the simple answer is because their business model is depending on you looking at this thing. The longer you stare at that screen, the more they benefit from it. Um, So... And we're up against, I think I remember there was a documentary on this, and I don't remember the name, but we're up against the absolute best uh, engineers in terms of, uh, they get us addicted to it. They know how to get us addicted to it. I think I I know what you're talking about. It was... um, Emil Hirsch, I think, played the <laughs> played the guy who who put his phone down for a few day for a few days. He was going to not use his phone, and it goes to like inside the phone, and it's like the three engineers talking yes, about. Yes, All right, send him a notification from his ex girlfriend. Let's try that. Let's... Is it the social issue or something like that? It was a Netflix <laughs> social movie. dilemma. Social dilemma. Yes. Social dilemma. <laughs> yeah. Which is a very good documentary. I really so enjoyed good. It. it was like he has not logged in in twenty four hours. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. The girlfriend. The ex-girlfriend just liked his his friend's status. Give him that notification. Show him that. You know, something to get him back on here. Yeah, I get that. They a lot. do that like, shit. They do. I don't really use Instagram very much, mm-hmm. um, but it's on my phone. So if I haven't opened it in a while, I'll get like a notification of like you know, Crudco Skate Shop posted a, a story. And yeah. Like, Okay, let's see what they're up to. And it pulls me right back into it. And it's like they know what they're doing. Like it's, <laughs> it's very intelligent people that are – it's an addiction. Uh-huh. And I worry most about definitely kids that are growing up with that kind of stuff. Like because when I was a teenager, all of this stuff was kind of in a, its nascent phases. Mm-hmm. Like Facebook is was not what it is now. Twitter was like just getting started. But like TikTok is – literal poison like it is dude. not good dude. for you dude no no oh god Ugh. so what's the future hold for you what do you think i mean right now if i could just say i don't know if you get to hear it enough because you said you get negative but you get positive comments too yeah sure it's just there it for whatever reason the poisonous part is those are easy to ignore the negative ones are hard to ignore yeah for sure but but you have worked yourself into just one of if you know one of the best in rochester i mean congratulations on what you've done because you've done Thank an you. amazing job with it and you are extremely likable and uh and all of that and all of that so what do you have in mind for your future are you just are you gonna keep cranking away at this or i mean what's the 10 20 30 year plan for you i don't have one oh, I, really? I i i hate saying that too because i feel like i should but i i really try to just um focus on what i'm supposed to be doing now and whatever happens happens um i don't want to leave rochester um I, I at this point in my life at all so you know, I want to stay here and be able to keep doing this work. I think it's vital to this community to have at least a few people that are paying attention to what's happening. And I don't mean that in like an egotist way that like my job is so important. It's just more of like, it, again, it, it comes back to the nature of the what the journalism industry for so many places has become, including Rochester, where there's a handful of people that are doing actual journalism still and i understand a hundred percent the 24-hour news cycle that tv goes through i'm not faulting people there for just putting every press conference they can on the air but 
we need people that are doing more than that mm-hmm. and like so I, I my plan is just to keep doing what i've been doing and uh so far it's been I mean, it's been a wild ride it's been really fun to you know be able to engage with the community in that way i'm glad you brought up the 24-hour news cycle tv because i don't think it's fair that you get lumped into that yeah because they they do you know people do lump you into that but you have the time to truly create journalism to to be a journalist i guess maybe create journalism isn't the right way to put that but to be a journalist and and do your the reporting that you need to do that's important to the community whereas 24-hour news cycles shows that have somebody's name on them probably aren't always yeah but anyway what i'm trying to say is you're right they have to fill 24 hours and sometimes i don't know if it's all great and it it kind of it makes them stretch their content a bit but I mean, then they lump you in with that, and that's not fair. I mean, we do completely different things, and there are some TV reporters here that I think do really good stuff. I think uh, Berkeley Breen is very good. Sure, yeah. Chodak is, uh, uh, does good work, and he's also a great guy. I really like Adam. Um, they, there's There are people here that are doing good stuff, but it's a completely different animal from what, you know, print investigative type of reporters do. Um, it does... I, it, sometimes it frustrates me that like you know I'll spend like a week or two working on a story it'll come out and then like a week later TV, TV news will do the same story because and they never I, sometimes they give credit but yeah. almost the Democrat Chronicle always does so I appreciate that and likewise but uh, yeah but you guys are real you know real journalists yeah. TV stations have a handful of yes. real journalists of course they do uh, at radio which was my background we were not real journalists we were mostly copy pasters but they don't want me saying that so I get in trouble for that um, but for the most part you know your stories are you are the one breaking the news you and and the some of the other journalists you mentioned yeah and there's um, I mean there's uh, Jennifer Lukey broke that story about the EMT um, that got handcuffed by mm-hmm. the the cop at um, with a strong hospital or it's Highland. I think that was I think, Highland. I think it was Highland. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, God, it feels like it was a year ago. I know, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So, like, it's not like they don't get scoops. They do, uh, but sure. like our entire business is trying to get scoops mm-hmm. constantly. So mm-hmm. it's it, it is just a different type of thing and. Um, I always, um, I always hate going into like the rabbit hole of like who's a real journalist and who's not, and because like you know everyone's working really hard. Everyone's, and I, everyone knows that someone has to show up at like the shooting scene. Mm-hmm. Someone has to uh, take in uh, uh, press releases because um, that's the nature of the business model. But it's just not something that I want to do, and it's it just does not feel like the kind of journalism I I do to begin with. Can I tell you a story about the one time in my life I did something right professionally? Sure. And it, it, the reason I even want to tell you is because I'm, I want I want to know how you do this. Because you have to talk to people who have just experienced tragedy a lot. And one time, you know, in, in radio, I spent, I don't know if you know this or not, but I spent about 10 years as a producer for the Brother Weeze show. Mm-hmm. And so occasionally I had to reach out to people. And uh, just after the Boston Marathon bombing, there were a couple Rochester connections to that story and uh, I, I had managed to get a phone number and called somebody and got uh, somebody on the phone and the first thing I said was I was like I'm I'm so sorry what a terrible day you've had and I am so sorry to be bothering you how are you how is your family how is everybody and you know okay well we're, we're, we're okay we'll make it through we're okay okay 
I'm calling from Rochester. I work for the Brother Wee Show. And, you know, I said, blah, 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 blah. She told me, she said, you know what? Yes, we will come on the air. I appreciate your compassion and the fact that you asked me how I was doing. You're the third phone call I've got. The other two immediately jumped into, can I get a quote from you for the, my story? Yes. The etiquette of the beginning of a conversation with somebody who has just experienced something horrific. What's what's the secret behind it? Is it just remembering that you're a human first? It's a very it's very very easy to fall into the trap when you're doing so many interviews and talking to so many people of looking them looking at them as quote generators and not as human beings. Mm-hmm. And th- that you always th- th- you have to just talk to people like humans. Um because you know everyone Everyone has their own things that they're going through, and uh, everyone, um, if you're in a situation where you're talking to a journalist, you're either having a great day, or you're <laughs> more than likely having one of the worst days of your life. <laughs> I have to be cognizant of that a lot. I, I have to be cognizant of that sometimes people are risking things by being willing to talk to me, um, and I have to have that kind of respect for people. As, uh, you know, making a really, might be one of the toughest decisions that, for me, it's just a Wednesday afternoon, might be one of the toughest decisions they've made in months, if not years, to actually go on the record with me. Mm -hmm. So that that can be a difficult thing. And uh, I had to be cognizant of that and sometimes it is easy to forget and go into the tactic of just cold calling people and saying like hey i need a quote from you um when you know it needs more nuance than that it needs a little bit more compassion yeah yeah last question hopefully okay (laughs) i know you're you're going to go you gotta go i'm sorry no crow medicine show tonight Canandaigua last night I guess when this were you supposed to leave like a while ago no my mom actually just texted me I'm going with my parents and she oh. said you want to leave around four so we have time okay well I'll make it I'll make it okay uh we'll end with this uh it's a it's a whopper but then we'll finish sure why isn't there more money in journalism people there don't want to pay for it, it how did we do this to ourselves? Um, th- that's a great question with a long answer of, I guess the shortest way to put it is when digital became an avenue for newspapers to put out their product, they decided that digital will never catch on the way print is. Print is going to stick around, so we'll just make it free. And if people want to read it online, they can do that. But, you know, the print product is our product. That is what we sell. Uh, Of course, we all know that didn't happen. People just ended up reading everything online. And in the long term, it became standard that journalism that's posted online is free. So... the economic model for newspapers like USA Today and all of its small, um, you know, regional papers like uh, the Democrat Chronicle, they had to reverse the damage that had already been done by their own hand of trying to find a subscription model that people would actually pay for for journalism that it actually impacted them. And they knew had value, but it had for years been placed as something that is free it's something that can just be offered to you so the money went away the standard of what this thing is worth was set by the own companies producing the product as nothing so if you know if jeep started putting out cars 
like my car there, and uh, started giving one them away for free for five years, and then started asking people to pay twenty thousand dollars for them. Who's going to buy Jeeps? Mm-hmm. And at that point, there's so many Jeep knockoffs at the market putting them out for free that who would ever buy a real one mm-hmm. again? And that ended with the pro- proliferation of all of these free news sites online, some of them good, most of them terrible, that are promoting political agendas or spreading outright lies for ad dollars. And the cultural implications of that and the social implications, I'm going down a rabbit hole here. I love that. You're giving the best answer I've ever heard to this, uh, so the, go on. The cultural and social implications of that are people are allowed to pick their own narratives about how we they view the world. And that's really easy to do when there's a thousand free websites that will promote any nonsense theory you have on the world that might doesn't even have a grain of truth to it. But something in our lizard brains, when we're told something that we already believe, we are vindicated. Uh, our we com- love being right. Humans we love, love being, being right. right. Yeah. And we truly hate being wrong mm-hmm. to the extent that it is an attack on our very existence sometimes to be told that some of our foundational beliefs are incorrect. But other times, it's things that aren't even foundational beliefs. They're really basic things that people don't want to be corrected on. So the short train answer there is... Gannett and other large newspaper companies decided that digital was not worth money, put out all their papers for free, decided later that actually this has value, our journalism costs money, so we need subscription services. As a result of that, and you know, before then too, but the popularity of all of these fringe websites that were producing quote-unquote news became more and more popular and then we ended up in a situation where people are allowed to go down whatever conspiracy theory rabbit hole they want to and believe that they're reading legitimate sources. And this has also led to the discrediting of actual journalism because fake news as a concept does exist but if you're going to call the New York Times fake news and not, you know, the Freedom Eagle dot Facebook or whatever you're reading that is telling you what you want to hear, then you've deluded yourself. Are algorithms to blame? And I guess I, I don't know how. Let me think about how to ask this. You know, I'm not I'm not well thought out. Um, okay, so here's where I go. I'm going with this. Algorithms get blamed sometimes. Oh, the algorithm is feeding these people. They're crazy conspiracy theory. But the algorithm is feeding them what they want based on what their past behavior. So aren't people creating the algorithms that Facebook is now feeding them? To some degree, yeah. But they also... <sighs> Facebook knows what things... Uh, hold people's attention, and the algorithm is always going to lead. To, it's always going to lean into the thing that they know has engaged other people's bef- people before. I think that's why, like a lot of more fringe stuff has flourished on there. Is because even if you don't believe what you're seeing when someone is telling you like the most wild out there theory you've ever heard, for some reason you're trapped into listening to it. And they know very well that that is something that they can use for marketing purposes. And they know very well that it drives up engagement numbers because at the end of the day, those engagement numbers are the only thing that matter to mm-hmm. them. So, of course, things that are salacious and things that are really, uh, frankly, toxic become they bubble to the top. 
how do you manage as a journalist deciding what to and what not to put on your social media? What I mean by that is you have done the research and created the story, and that story is now going to go on whatever organization it is for you work for his website behind a paywall because people should have to pay for your work. Correct. We all agree. <laughs> but now you're going to go on Twitter to promote that story. How much do you and how much do you not give away of that story because you can accidentally give away enough that now I don't have to necessarily go read it because you just gave me the top five points. Well, first of all, luckily, I'm, uh, the city is free still. Yes. Uh, yeah. The city is still free. <laughs> WXXI is free. Uh, public is the future of all media and journalism. That's just, uh, I'll go on the record saying that. No, no I've heard uh, a lot of people say that. And I think yeah, you are absolutely right. Yeah. The the, the future of private um, enterprise journalism is dead. It's all going to be public in the future, and we should all embrace that because it is the best way to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that... Um, I've had to be in situations where I knew my story was behind a paywall and I want people to read it. I mean, I'm ultimately I'm writing things, not so whatever corporate entity owns the company uh, can make a bottom line because I want this story to go out into the world. Um, um, most journalists don't tend to be corporatists uh, and they don't tend to be loyal to companies to begin with. But uh, you know, it, it goes into the general of like what I'm comfortable sharing on social media. I have to think about that a lot because I, I definitely overuse Twitter. I, I frankly think I'm addicted to it. Um, like I, on the weekends, I don't use it. I'm at work. It's always a tab on my computer that's open. So, mm-hmm. um, but I keep what I don't want the pe- people to know is what I don't put on there. So. I think for a story, if it was behind a paywall, it's just, you know, I don't want to give away the thrust of the story if I know that there has to be a profit on it. But at the same time, you know, I want to give it away. So it's a a paradox, really, um, which I hope I never have to deal with again because I remember having to do it and it was super annoying. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's tough. It's a tricky thing to do. You're so right that public is the future for journalism. You're so right. I've heard that a, ma- a million times now, and it's I can't see any other way. I there is no other way. No. No. Hey. Uh, All right, Gino. Old Crow Medicine Show. Old Crow big Medicine fan Show. Or just your pr- parents are big fan, or what? So it's actually funny because... Uh, I I'm I play banjo and stuff like I'm I'm a cool. pretty I big bluegrass fan. <laughs> um, my dad isn't really like he just like I show him like a lot of like bluegrass I'm listening to and he hates it. But he heard Wagon Wheel and he liked it and didn't realize that they are like a straight up bluegrass band. Yeah. <laughs> so I showed him some other songs and he's like, oh, this is like actual bluegrass like, <laughs> yeah dude i'm gonna have fun you're gonna have a terrible time <laughs> so uh yeah it's gonna be uh c-max be beautiful you got a beautiful night i've Honestly, actually never been you've never I, been to c never been to see holy cow what yeah. a big night for you yeah it's gonna be a big night for me i i, I you know I, i'm learning that i'm old now because uh or getting old because this is the second show i've gone to in two days and i'm very tired you're tired <laughs> where are you sitting you under the shell or are you in the lawn I, I all i've heard is that we got good seats so okay, i'm, I'm okay. looking forward to seeing it all right good well yeah. i mean on a beautiful night like tonight kind of doesn't matter but obviously the lawn can get the lot you can get pretty far back there i mean we went to see lumineers a few months ago and we were on the lawn and we were all the way in the back 
and you know you're looking at ants at that point but then my wife went to see keith urban and she was in like the 10th row and it's a different experience like you can see their facial expressions <laughs> you know it's like any other venue but what i'm trying to get around to you've never been to c-mac beautiful night c-mac's a beautiful venue it's music you love you're gonna have a great night yeah and also uh two things uh for quantum brewing second anniversary is today and just give me a shout out to them nice I, I love those guys um they're super cool people and uh so we're going there beforehand and having a beer and i'm also not driving so i might dance yes <laughs> i like it all right gino thank you so much for doing yeah this. thanks for thanks for asking me absolutely